Hey, everybody. We're working on new episodes and the beginning of the school year. And so and so today we're going to replay one of my favorite episodes. It's about music. It's about musical instruments and the science behind them. Enjoy. McMinnville, Oregon. This is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that is music to your ears. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Harmony in a World of Dissonance. Hey, Chad. Good morning, Michael. It's nice to hear your sonorous voice. I I think that can always be said. <laughs> <laughs> what is it that's so pleasing about your voice, Michael? I don't know. It must be the nasal. It's so unique and special that... Everybody loves it. I would not have described your voice as nasally. I think it's interesting that you say that. Really? Well, it, you know, it's probably the case that when you hear your own voice the way other people hear it, it probably sounds more nasally to you because you're used to hearing it inside your own head. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I, I always think my voice sounds more nasally when it when I'm listening to it rebroadcast at me than when I hear it vibrating off my jawbones as well. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we should have an episode about hearing sometime. But that's not our topic today. Today we're talking about the physics of musical instruments. All right, you're going to shut me down. Right, yeah. We got to talk about the physics of it first, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> Why would we do anything else, actually? Exactly. Yeah, but so today we are talking about the physics of musical instruments. And we were both thinking about the same topic, basically. And so it's kismet. We have to do it this way. And we're going to have a demo, actually, a little bit later on, in which I use a piano. But before we get into that, do you play any musical instruments? I had a number of years of piano lessons as a child. I picked up the guitar and sort of taught myself a few chords and still will get it out and strum every once in a while. But I can't say that I actively play any instruments at the moment. You? I grew up playing the clarinet. Actually, I, I did one year of violin and then I switched to the clarinet after that because nobody likes violence on TV. <laughs> I mean, name one band that doesn't have a rock and clarinet player in it. I challenge you. And I, I bought a guitar a few years ago to teach myself some chords too. But uh-huh. How's that going? It's mainly just a paperweight right now. <laughs> I have some more work to do. Okay. <laughs> I, I actually, right here next to my desk at home, several years ago for Christmas, I was gifted a build-your-own ukulele kit. For years and years, I just never had the time and inclination to put it together until pandemic times. <laughs> so something good came out of this all then. Yeah, exactly. So now I have this little ukulele that will not stay in tune. That was beautiful. Let's let's talk about that right now, actually. You, so you just plucked a string. Yes. And so what's surprising about plucking a string is that it might make you think that when you pluck it, all you're doing is you're making the string go up and down like that, right? Uh-huh. But it's actually doing more than that. And so physicists have to come up with a more complicated way of, of modeling what's going on. Instead of having just the entire string just moving up and down, we model it as a wave that basically when you pluck the string, yes, you're making a disturbance, but that disturbance then travels in both directions and then is traveling up and down the string uh-huh. as it continues to vibrate. I know, and you're, you're like, well, why do physicists always have to make things harder, right? But it's important because when we have these waves bouncing back and forth like that, they will reflect off of the ends and then come back and they will interact with each other. Okay. And when they do that, then certain waves will 
be reinforced, and most other waves will actually be canceled out. And so this matters because the sound from the string is actually, the string is vibrating, it is then basically pushing air molecules around, and air molecules moving and compressing and whatever, that's what sound is, right? Yeah, okay. And so you're producing the sound by actually having the moving string. And actually, in just a little bit, we're going to talk about how you also have to have a body attached to the instrument in order to sort of amplify the amount of air that you're actually pushing around. But ultimately what we're doing is to create the sound, this string itself is pushing the air back and forth and causing that to vibrate and causing the sound to propagate away from the string. Now, if all we were doing was this one vibration, we would expect just one single note being played. But there is only one note being played. Well, actually, when we actually listen to the sound, there are several what are called harmonics played simultaneously when we pluck the string. Hmm. That it's not just the fundamental, as it's called, the, the note that you're trying to play. You also have all these higher frequency tones that are simultaneously being played as soon as you pluck the string. Right. So like a pure tone would sound, well, here's an example of just a pure tone. And here's an example of what you just did. Pluck your string again. And if you pay attention, the, the pure tone is sort of a dull sound, I guess. Whereas the, the ukulele, or really any normal musical instrument, has a lot of extra richness and brightness to it. So our goal today is to figure out what the details are that allow for these higher harmonics to be played at the same time as we're plucking that string. Well, let me ask you. It's So this string that I just plucked is anchored at two points. There's the bridge, which is the part down on the body of the instrument, and then the nut, which is the part way up by the tuning keys. And I guess my own mental picture is when I pluck this string, those two points are stationary and the entire string is sort of vibrating up and down and up and down. Is that not the case? It sounds to me like what you're describing is more complicated than that. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. The way that this works is basically when you pluck your guitar or ukulele or whatever instrument we're talking about, we have this disturbance, this rippling happens from the place that you pluck it to either end of the, the instrument. You know, And the rippling I think of as like, I don't know if you've seen like, football players in the gym sometimes are flipping these heavy jump ropes to get shoulder exercises and they, they kind of flick their arms and, and this ripple goes from their arms to the wall or something like that and stops. Mm -hmm. This is sort of what's happening with the string is that when you pluck it, you have these ripples that go on either direction. So it sounds like there are vibrations on the string that are sort of passing over each other. Yeah. And so these ripples actually are going down to either end, either the nut or the bridge. And they're reflecting off of those points and then coming back along the string and, and then just bouncing back and forth, back and forth. Okay. If you were to have a high-speed camera, would you be able to zoom in and catch these waves traveling? Yeah, actually. Maybe we should put a link on Facebook to one of those videos so that people can actually see that ripple traveling down the wave. Okay. Now, when you first pluck the string, this ripple that you make is, is really the combination of an infinite number of waves, each with a slightly different frequency or wavelength if you choose. Okay. So let's describe what this wave would be doing, right? It's when I pluck it, it's going to have this ripple going in either direction. But the ripple consists of the string pulling, let's say, above where it was normally, the equilibrium point, and then oscillating back down to below where it was, sort of like a swing door, right? It, it goes past the point of equilibrium and then comes back above and it's, it's kind of going back and forth. So this is basically what that wave is doing. It's trying to go above and below the level of the string. Okay. Once it gets to either end, though, we have the nut and the bridge, right? Those are fixed points. Those are not going to let the string go above or below. So if the string is trying to do that at those locations, the nut or the bridge, either one, will absorb that energy and not send it back. However, 
if this wave, if this pulse is naturally wanting to go back to zero by the time it reaches either end, it will be able to reflect off of there and come back and keep going back and forth. Okay. And so then the only frequencies left vibrating on the string are the ones that can fit appropriately between the bridge and the nut? Yeah, you can actually hear it. Actually, pluck your string again, and what you'll notice is it's going to be a very harsh sound when it starts, and then it will kind of mellow out after that. Okay, here we go. Yeah, you'll notice it was a little harsher when you first plucked it. Yeah. So the, the striking sound is actually a bunch of extra notes that don't really belong there, that don't fit on the string there, and then they dampen out very quickly. You know, I in one of my acoustic guitars, it had the the bridge got kind of like wallowed out where the string goes through. Mm -hmm. And for a long time before I got it fixed, whenever I would pluck that string, it would make this really ugly, extra tinny, kind of a whole bunch of dissonant additional sounds Mm. with that string. And I'm just now realizing why that's the case. It's because that bridge wasn't doing its job of damping out all of the additional frequencies on that string. And so those continued longer. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, but the key is, if you do have a note that fits perfectly within there, it will continue to resonate a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And so one of the notes that fits perfectly on here would be one in which it would naturally come up from the bridge and naturally want to end again at the nut, right? And then bounce back and forth. That, that is exactly half of the wavelength would be between the nut and the bridge. Uh-huh. That's what we would call the fundamental, the note that you're trying to play. But that's not the only note that can play. These other harmonics are notes that could also fit on there, all right? So basically, the fundamental would be a note that could maybe start from the bridge and close again at the nut. But another option would be maybe exactly halfway in between. You could start from the bridge, go up, cross back at zero, halfway in between, and then touch it back again at the nut. And that wave is exactly half of the length. The wavelength is exactly half of what it originally would be for the fundamental. And then could you have one that that divides it into thirds? Yes, you could. And fourths and fifths and sixths and on all the way up. Got it. And so you have, in principle, an infinite number of these waves that keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter by one half, one third, one fourth, one fifth integer fractions. As long as these notes are able to fit perfectly on the string, then they will be able to continue to, to resonate and play. And in fact, the instrument will play these extra notes and continue to play them. And so that's what gives an instrument its characteristic sound of being an instrument as opposed to like a digitally generated tone of the same fundamental frequency, right? Yep, exactly. And so one more thing before we move on from this, uh, we can also change the note we're playing by shortening the length of the string because then basically, you know, when you put your finger on a fret, you're effectively shortening the length of the string, which means that you're effectively playing different notes. So here I'm going to... Yeah, I just pressed down on one of the frets, and like you said, it's a higher note. So now, you know, let's talk about the frequencies, because it was easier to describe the physics of it by talking about the wavelength, but in reality, what we care about is the frequency, the the sounds that we hear. And frequency is just one over the, the wavelength, and so not only are we playing that fundamental frequency, we're also playing something that has twice that frequency, and three times, and four times, and five times, and integer multiples of that fundamental frequency. Okay. And so musicians, when they talk about the harmonics, they're talking about the frequency, the fundamental frequency, and then the second harmonic is double the fundamental frequency, the third harmonic is triple the fundamental frequency, and so forth. But it all comes from the fractions of the lengths of the string. Yeah. 
Okay. Oh, and it also works the same way with wind instruments. So, for instance, if you're playing the clarinet, the mouthpiece has a reed in it, and what you do is you blow, and the reed itself starts to vibrate. And it vibrates at whatever frequency it wants to do, but the only frequencies that can make the sound are the ones that fit exactly in the length of the the clarinet there. And so ultimately what you're doing is you're covering all the holes to make the length of the clarinet longer. And then to get higher notes, you just lift up some holes and then basically the effective length of the clarinet gets shorter and shorter. And so you can play higher notes. Without that reed, that is the thing that is creating the vibrations. Yep. And so then like I actually uh, used to play saxophone for a few years in like middle school. And you did not include that in your list of musical talent. I didn't want to like brag or anything. (laughs) But it's the case with the sax, and I know it's the case with the clarinet as well. If you take that mouthpiece off of there and it's just the mouthpiece, you can blow on it and create a sound, but it just sounds like a a shrieking duck, right? Uh, Yeah. You can't manipulate the sound at all, but once you put it onto the instrument, what does that do that brings the tone way down? Well, it makes it interact with the body of the instrument. And, And again, only the notes that fit exactly along the length of the clarinet or the saxophone will be played. Ah, okay. So even though you keep blowing in it, only these frequencies will will make any sound. And so just the tiny little hole in the body of the instrument is enough to effectively cut the instrument off right there. Like as far as the wave is considered, that is the end of the wave. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it must be because the pressure is able to escape at that point rather than being forced all the way to the end. Well, the wave here, instead of being movement on the string, it's actually high pressure and low pressure pockets that are creating the sound. And so basically by opening up your finger, you are creating a spot where you're forcing the pressure to be that of the atmosphere. Okay. And so if we were to sort of make this analogous to the guitar string that we were just talking about, the bridge would be sort of analogous to what the mouthpiece and then the nut on the neck would be sort of analogous to the lowest hole that is open. Yeah. And then uh, with other musical instruments like a trumpet and trombone, that sort of a thing, rather than having a reed vibrating, you are actually pursing your lips and you're kind of making your lips vibrate a little bit. But it's still the same basic idea. With a trombone, for instance, you move the slide out and you are making the tube longer. With a trumpet, you have these buttons that basically when you press one down, it diverts the air to be in another pathway, which again, makes it a longer tube. So how is the different bodies of different musical instruments related to their sound then? Oh, right. So let's talk about a guitar. Have you ever opened up the body of a guitar or your ukulele when you were putting it together? Do you have to like glue in special pieces or anything in the inside of it? On the inside? No, the body was already just put together. Yeah, I didn't have to assemble the body itself. Okay, well, if you've ever looked inside of a guitar, there's often a lot of little scraps of wood and random pieces inside there? Yeah, definitely inside my acoustic guitars there is. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Are those just like to support the body or are those... No, that's for the music. Oh, how does that work? Well, as we mentioned before, when you pluck the string, the sound is being made by the string itself is vibrating and and interacting with the air, causing the air to vibrate as well. And that's the sound we hear. But the string has a very small cross-sectional area, right? I mean, it's not very big. It's just a wire. And so it's not pushing around a whole lot of air. However, in the case of a guitar or violin or whatever, the string is also attached to the bridge, which is then attached to the rest of the body, making the entire body of the instrument vibrate as well. And this makes it louder. Uh huh. Now, what's interesting, though, is that the body, the shape of the body, will amplify some notes more than other notes. And so in music, they call this the timbre. It's spelled timbre, but it's pronounced timbre. <laughs> 
And so, for instance, a guitar or a violin could be playing the exact same note, but which of the harmonics they're playing loudly will vary dramatically. And so, for instance, if you play the same note on both a guitar and a, a violin, a violin, the fundamental, the note you're playing is, is the loudest. And then the second harmonics is a little bit softer. The third is a little softer than that. And it just goes down sort of in a linear pattern. But with the guitar, the second and third harmonics are almost as loud as the first. And then it starts tapering off at higher notes than that. And because of that, a violin and a guitar will always sound very different from each other. And that's all to do with the body of the instrument. So it's more than just the size of the body. It has to do with the shape and what's on the inside. Yeah, and the shape and the holes and everything. Yeah, like a violin is considerably smaller than a guitar, but this ukulele is maybe about the size of a violin, It's but it definitely sounds different from a violin. And you're telling me that that has to do with the body and how it either amplifies or damps out different parts of the harmonics that are produced. Yeah. Does it have anything to do with how this vibration on the string is initiated, like plucking or strumming on a guitar string versus a bow? Um, not really. I mean, you can still pluck a violin and it still sounds like a violin. Right, right. And if you're using a bow on a guitar, you're playing cashmere, I believe. <laughs> I think that's right, actually. And the body is also why some musical instruments are considered better than others. You've heard of a Stradivarius violin, for instance. Yeah. And basically, its shape, its wood, its the body is constructed in such a way that it produces a very nice balance of the harmonics that people find pleasing. Whereas the kind that I played back in third grade was very cheaply mass-produced, and it did not sound as good. Also, I wasn't very good at the violin. So okay, the... I was going to say. <laughs> so the only reason you in third grade... We didn't have a Stradivarius, yeah. Yeah, my mom didn't want to shell out the money for one of those. I don't know why. Missed opportunity. In a similar way, other instruments, the bodies can affect the harmonics. So we talked about a clarinet and a saxophone, for instance. A clarinet has a, the inside is the same diameter all the way down from the mouthpiece down to the bell. Whereas like a saxophone is gradually getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the way down. And that difference right there actually makes a saxophone what I would call brighter, is playing a lot more of the harmonics, whereas a clarinet, the, har the higher harmonics drop off very, very quickly. Okay, yeah, I remember in like middle school band and stuff, just always feeling like for some, some reason, the tones coming from the clarinets just sounded cleaner, if that makes sense, maybe less complicated. Yeah, because there are fewer harmonics being played. Yeah, it seemed like the saxophones had more of a rumble to them. Yeah, I agree, it's pretty cool. And I guess we should talk about what a piano does, since I'm sitting at one right now. A piano has different strings for every single note that you want to play. All the white keys, all the black keys, all these keys are hitting a different piece of string in order to produce different notes. And each one, when you press the key, Two things happen. First of all, there's a little piece of felt that's on each string. And this is to make sure that you're not producing music when you don't want to produce music. So it's, it's a damper. It's stopping the string from vibrating. But when you press the key, that is first lifted up. And then a hammer is brought down to strike the note that you want to play. And this hammer can strike it hard or it can strike it soft, depending on how hard you press the key.
And then when you let go, then the dampener goes right back on to the string and stops the note from being played. Right. Okay. Now, the piano keys themselves are arranged in such a way that hopefully you've seen a piano before, but just in case, there's a number of white keys all along the bottom. And then in between some of these keys, there's also a black key. The black keys are half notes in between the white keys. And the, the black keys are either sharp or flat, depending on where you're referencing it, right? So that A sharp is the same as B flat. Uh-huh. And these black keys kind of go in, in a pattern of there's a group of two black keys, and then there's, there's not a black key in between the next two notes. And then there are a group of three black keys, and then another gap, and then two, three, two, three, two, three, all the way up the board. Now, musicians would say that when you go through a full pattern of, say, the two black keys, the three black keys, that that would be what's called an octave, right? So you can play the exact same notes one octave down and then move up and play those within the same pattern there, and you're playing the exact same notes, just a higher version of it, an octave above. A normal piano has seven octaves of this repeating pattern with the black keys in between. And so the notes on the piano are labeled as A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then it repeats to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So I bring all this up because I want to use this as a demonstration tool to, first of all, reinforce everything that we've been talking about, how striking one note is actually playing all the harmonics up above it. But then I also want to use this to talk about how musical nomenclature has been developed, at least in the Western culture. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play first a C, and now I'm going to play one octave above that. Now, remember, when I press the key, it lifts up the damper. So what I'm going to do is with this higher C... I'm going to just lightly press the key. Not hard enough for me to actually use the hammer and play a note. But now the damper's off. Now I'm going to replay the original C, the lower C, and listen to what happens. Did you hear that? So when I played the lower C, I played that, and then I took my finger off of that. So I stopped that note playing. And yet there was still this higher note that kind of kept playing on. That's the higher octave. That's one octave up. That's the C that I just was holding down to let it ring. Very cool stuff. Here, listen again. So what happened there is by playing the original C, that note was actually playing not just the fundamental note. It was also playing all the harmonics above it, right? So it was playing that frequency. It was also playing twice that frequency and three times that frequency and four times that frequency and on and on and on up, right? So it was playing all these simultaneously when I played it, such that by taking off the dampener on the octave above it, the vibrations from the first string were actually triggering the note to be played on that second string as well. So the vibrations of that first string were of the appropriate, what, frequency? And because the damper was off, then it allowed that string to start vibrating. Exactly. That's because that second string will vibrate at twice the frequency of the original string. And so since the original string was playing that second frequency, it sympathetically made this one start to ring out as well. And so that's an octave. Yes. And so an octave in scientific terms would mean that the frequency is twice the lower frequency. So every time that you increase an octave, you're doubling the frequency. Okay. Okay. And so that gets back to this idea of like two to one, three to one, four to one multiples. So then presumably it should also work for the next C up as well too, right? Well, let's find out. I'm going to do the same experiment, but this time one octave above that. So I'm going to lightly press this key and do the same thing again. So we still heard that. It was quieter than before because we're going up to multiple harmonics up. And so that sound is weaker. It's also farther away from that particular string, but it's still there. And we still got the sympathetic playing. But this time, this is an octave above the first one. 
So whereas the original frequency, we went up double that, now we doubled it up again. So that would be four to one. Yeah, so this is the fourth harmonic of the original note. Got it, okay. So, so three to one must be somewhere in the middle. Exactly. And so now I'm going to play a G, an octave above the original note. And again, I'm going to lightly press this key so that I can open it up, take off the damper, and we'll see this happen again. Uh-huh. All right, so let's get some nomenclature here. So I'm going to call this C1. I'm going to call this C2, an octave above the original. The second octave up, I'm going to call C3. And in between those two, the third harmonic, which I just played, I'm going to call that G. And I'm going to call it G2 because it's in the same octave as the start of the C2 that I played. But notice that my C2 and my G2 actually sound really good together. This is what we call a perfect fifth, and it is the basis for a lot of music. In fact, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star starts out with a perfect fifth. And so hearing a perfect fifth turns out that hearing two notes together that have a ratio of three to two still sounds really good to us. Okay. And then the transition from, say, G2 to C3 also sounds good. We call that a perfect fourth, which is also used in a lot of music. Okay. And now, just very quickly, we could keep doing this sort of a pattern, right? We could find other ratios like this of integer ratios of 2 to 1, 3 to 2, 4 to 3, 5 to 4. And they're all based on these types of higher harmonics being related to each other. So, for instance, I could keep going to the next octave up. That would be the eighth harmonic of the original note we were playing. But in between, there's a 5, 6, and a 7 that we, we would have skipped over, right? And the 6, again, would have been a G. This time the G3, I guess. But in between, the fifth one would be actually the E, which then gives us basically the major third in music. Anyway, I, sorry, I, I didn't mean to go off into the weeds here with all this music. But here we are. <laughs> anyway, if you keep going on up, you eventually can fill out all 12 notes in the Western scales per octave. This includes the seven white keys and the five black keys on a piano. Right. Now, why did we stop at 12? I don't know. Apparently, people who were coming up with this music theory decided that it became too dissonant if they kept going up beyond that. Okay. Dissonance just means that two notes are too close to each other that it sounds uncomfortable to listen to. Now, we've only been talking about Western music, but Eastern music still follows the same patterns, actually. They still follow the same ratios of things, but they do go and extend much higher than Western ears do. And so they tend to sound a lot more dissonant than than Western music will. The, the interesting thing to me is what I might perceive as dissonance. I wonder if somebody raised in that culture would not perceive that as dissonance and would perceive right. a scale that I am used to as either missing some notes or having some weird additional notes. Well, my understanding informally from people that I talk to is that they kind of find Western music to be a little more boring. Kind of like for us, nursery rhyme songs are a little too simple and they're just like, yeah, Western music's just the. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. And the final thing I want to touch on right now is how a piano tuned is actually a compromise between a lot of different things. So do you know what a, a change in scale means? Sure. Oftentimes in music, you'll change the scale that you're basing all the notes off of. So for instance, maybe you start out in a C major scale, and then after a few bars, you switch to a G major scale, just to make it sound a little bit different, just to keep it interesting. Okay, sure. Well, here's the problem. If we have based all 12 tones frequencies that we want to possibly play within an octave on ratios and fractions based off of one note 
let's say A, which is 440 hertz. And then we want to change our key. Let's say to, let's say to an E, which would be its perfect fifth. That would be at 660 hertz, right? If we redid all the numbers based on those fractions, right? Remember, we're making fractions of three halves and four thirds and eight sevenths and all these different things. If we base all of our ratios off of the first 440 hertz, and then we want to change our key to something based off of 660 hertz, now, all of a sudden, the numbers don't totally line up with the original set of keys that we did, just because we're multiplying and dividing by all these fractions and stuff, right? And so as soon as we change key, maybe we need to have a whole new instrument that is tuned perfectly to this new key or something. I don't know, but it doesn't work out well. And so what piano does when they tune it is they actually make compromises. They put all of the notes slightly off from what they should theoretically be because most people would not be able to tell the difference if we were just off by just a few hertz here or there. So a piano is not an ideal tuning of everything, but it's general enough that it allows people to play all of the different keys and change key in the middle of a song and things like that and be close enough to what you would want to hear that it sounds mostly okay. So anyway, that's some of the physics behind music and musical instruments. Well, that was interesting. Well, thanks, Mike. And thank you, Chad, for showing your skill on the ukulele. And uh, I guess we'll talk again later. All right. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rodeo Ortega wrote our theme music using Western theory music scales. Kathleen Spring posts things on digital comments for us. Thank you. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you can download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, you should leave a comment and a rating. That'll help other people find our podcast. If you have an idea for a future episode, email us at crisscrossingscient@gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>